Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Every week we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand in hand with baking for those we love. And right now is no exception. We've heard you listeners and know you're counting on us to keep the baking conversation going strong, even in uncertain times. So that's what we intend to do. Today, we'll see if extra tall and fluffy pancakes provided an extra start to our day, and we'll introduce a sweet and savory black sesame cookie from just one cookbook. Finally, we'll have a roundup of resources for all things sweet and Japanese. So put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet talk. Stefan, a little over a month ago, the 2020 James Beard Award nominees were announced, Mm -hmm. and I thought we could talk a bit about the contenders for the best baking book. Oh, it's really exciting, Andrea. I think the actual celebration happens in the fall, but they announce the potential winners in advance so you can get excited and take a look. Yes, and I think the actual celebration got moved because of you know what's going on yeah so I'm not sure exactly when the announcement will be but if you go to the James Beard website you can subscribe to the award newsletter and stay on top of it yeah we'll get you started with some information here the first book I absolutely love the title of this it's called Dappled Mm. Baking Recipes for Fruit Lovers and it's by Nicole Rucker Yes, I love that too. And we are fruit lovers. We love baking with all kinds of different fruits. And I am a lover of the word dappled. Sometimes Mm. when I'm laying Mm. in my backyard and looking through the trees and I see the sun coming through, I think of that word. We don't use it very often, but it's such a great word. And it just really conjures up fresh fruit to me for some reason. Also hanging on the Mm -hmm. tree and very bucolic setting. Yeah, definitely going to check that one out. The next one, very appropriate for the times we're living through, is called Living Bread, Tradition and Innovation in Artisan Bread Making by Daniel Leader and Lauren Chapman. Andrea, this is not one that I have run across. Is this on your radar? This one's not on my radar. You know, it's funny. I have always somewhat avoided books that are 100% focused on bread because Mm. typically they've gotten too technical for me. Okay. But because of our stint of isolation baking, I've done a lot more bread baking and now I find myself really interested in it. So I think I might pick this one up. And just based on the title, Living Bread, Mm. I'm guessing that it might involve some starters, might involve some wild yeast. I don't know for sure, but I'm going to look for it. I think that might be a great bet. Yeah. Well, the final one in the list is one I do know about. It is called Pastry Love, a baker's journal of favorite recipes by Joanne Chang. Oh. The reason I know about this book, back in our Flower Power Month that we did earlier this year, I was doing some research on some different types of flour. Mm -hmm. And I just did a search on that title at the library. And up came a cookbook called Flower by Joanne Chang. So I thought, oh my gosh, perfect. All, oh, yeah. You know, I was thinking everything I need is going to be in this one book. <laughs> so I get the cookbook. And as it turns out, <laughs> Joanne Chang owns a restaurant named Flower. I should say she owns a bakery named Flower. And these are the recipes from that bakery. And it's a fabulous cookbook. The recipes looked amazing. But it was not a book about different types of flour, as I initially suspected. (laughs) Ah, gotcha. 
That is amazing. So it was all kinds of bakes then, not just bread. Exactly. But all kinds of things yeah, you would yeah. see at a bakery then. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it, I it, love it. It's just, it was just named Flour after her bakery, not because she was exploring different types of flour. But sure. I really love the book. So I am looking forward to looking at Pastry Love. I think Pastry Love was one of the books recently on the Food 52 okay. cooking Facebook group. And I saw some really good photos and good comments from people having success from that cookbook. So I think out of these three... I know. Well, I was going to say I'm going to get Pastry Love first, but now I'm thinking maybe Dappled first. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, especially as we're going into summer and fresh fruit is becoming more available too. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, listeners, if any of you have these books, have baked out of them, let us know what you love. I think too, Andrea, that... This is a challenging time for anyone writing a book, and that includes people writing cookbooks. So if you're in the market for a new one, you have a birthday or another celebration or want to treat yourself, then maybe think about some of these new cookbooks coming to market. Yes, please think about supporting your cookbook authors. And if you have a local independent bookstore, I'd love to put in a little plug for them as well, going through some tough times. They might be able to get these books for you and be a fun way to support your community. Absolutely. Andrea, we are up this week with a review of our third bake-along. It is the extra-tall, extra-fluffy Japanese souffle pancakes, similar to the ones served at Graham Cafe. And this comes from Stephanie over at I Am A Food Blog. Last week when we introduced this recipe, neither one of us had eaten a souffle pancake. And the introduction was really funny. I'm not sure we read this when we introed the recipe, but it says... This is a premium pancake with texture sensations you've never experienced before. Oh, I know. <laughs> I mean, that really sets you up for an exciting morning, doesn't it? <laughs> well, especially the extra tall and extra fluffy. Mm. I mean, it's not just tall and fluffy. No. It's extra tall and extra fluffy. There's a lot of superlatives going on in this yeah. recipe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were thinking when we introed this that it was feeling a little crafty. There were some staple staples involved. There was some <laughs> parchment paper molds. There was a griddle with a lid. It was going to be a learning experience no matter what. Andrea, I can't wait to talk about this one with you. <laughs> well, I am going to try and keep my temper in check as I speak. Oh, dear. Because this is one of those recipes that... My summary is written at the top of the recipe, which I wrote Mm -hmm. hard in all caps. And unfortunately, at the end of the day, the result was not worth all of the work. So I don't want to be super negative about it because I think it was fun to try and my family Mm -hmm. enjoyed it. Okay. But I just had a lot of difficulties. So I'll start with instruction one. Yes. Before we get into the ingredients, we mentioned this last week. The first step is to make... The parchment paper molds. Yeah. And I'm not a crafty person. I do have parchment paper, thank goodness, but you know, I didn't have this mysterious staple stapler. So I had to use a regular stapler and I just sort of estimated what a four inch round was. Turns out you don't want to estimate on that. That was a mistake on my part because yeah, I ended up making my first round of molds way too small. I have a little note after step one where I wrote, too hard, took a break. And it's not often that I need to take a break mid-recipe. That's not called After for the first step. The yeah. 
So how about you uh, in terms of getting the setup and the mold? What did you find when it came to making that step one? Yeah, and Andrea, I think it's okay to say here, you know, listeners, we try our darndest to not talk about recipes in between making them, in between the review on the show. But this time you had sent me uh, a picture and (laughs) let's just say it. (laughs) prompted me to ask a follow-up question, which included, can you tell me anything else about what's going on here? And you told me to measure exactly. Yes. With that in mind, here I come with step one. Now, Andrea, here's a crucial flaw in this recipe from my perspective. She says, make the parchment paper molds, cut them out about two inches high. Okay, so I measured that. I knew how Mm -hmm. uh, tall they should be. But then she says, shape into a round about four inches. Mm -hmm. I took that to mean four inches in diameter. Mm -hmm. But after I made them, I think she must have meant four inches long. No, I disagree. I disagree. Because my my first round, I made four inches long. And they were too small. They, I ended up with four pancakes and they didn't look anything like the pictures. And then in my second round... I made them um, four inches in diameter, Mm -hmm. and I figured out how long I needed to cut my parchment because, of course, circumference equals pi times the (gasps) diameter. Listen to you. So if you take 3.14 and multiply it by your four-inch diameter, you end up with 12 and a half. Mm -hmm. So my second round, I cut my 12 and a half-inch parchment strips. But then when I went to staple them, I realized, oh, you need a bit of overhang mm-hmm. for that crossover where they staple. So my third round, oh, no. <laughs> I ended up with, I made my strips 13 inches long, two inches okay. high. Yeah. And that allows you to staple them with about a half an inch of crossover and end up with a four inch diameter round. I'm exhausted from just saying that. <laughs> yeah, we haven't even gotten to baking no. yet. Um- <laughs> But see, I can't agree with you because my four-inch diameters, well, to cut to the spoiler here, I could not get them to cook all the way through. And so I assumed that they were just too big and I had too much batter to cook in the amount of time. Let's keep talking because I (laughs) I think when we get to the ingredients and putting the batter into the rounds, maybe different experiences will, will have different things to say. So I guess before we go on, I should say that I also reinforced mine with tinfoil. That was a step that she had, or it was a tip that she had at the bottom of this recipe. And I agree, my parchment was much too floppy. I felt more confident having that reinforced with a band of tinfoil. That was smart. I okay. I think one should do that. I did not. Okay. <laughs> and I had, I had floppy parchment as well. So after we've both taken a break, yes. now we're on... <laughs> We're on to the ingredients. And the ingredients here are fascinating to me because, as I've mentioned before, I make pancakes regularly. It's one of those things I don't even need to look at the recipe. And my regular recipe has two cups of flour. And you look at this recipe, it's got one egg yolk, a half a teaspoon of sugar, two tablespoons of milk, three tablespoons or 30 grams of flour. I mean, for two pancakes, that's just almost nothing. Yes. Tiny. A quarter teaspoon of baking powder. Tiny. And um, so that's going to be your basic mix. And then you've got two large egg whites and an eighth of a teaspoon of cream of tartar and a tablespoon of sugar. And that's going to be your meringue that you whisk up and fold into those first five ingredients that you've mixed together. Yeah. And a good reminder, too, that you're only making two pancakes. Yes. Right. So then you've got the egg yolk mixture you Beat the egg whites. I did this in my KitchenAid until, you know, a nice thick meringue. And you don't want to overwhip that, but you want to make sure it has a nice thick peak. 
And then you fold in the whites into the yolks. And she has pretty mm-hmm. direct instructions for how to do that. You know, take a third and then whisk it in. Then half of the remaining mm-hmm. and whisk it in. And finally, you put it all together. And you want to do that because you don't want to lose any volume. That's what's obviously going to make these puffy and extra tall and extra fluffy. Yes, and I want to say on round one and two, I followed her instructions about taking the third of the whipped egg whites and whisking it in. Yeah. And by round three, I was so exhausted, I just dumped all of my egg whites in. And I want to encourage listeners, follow her steps and do it by a third because I I felt I did lose volume and it just didn't incorporate very well when you mix all of the egg whites into the egg yolk mixture at one. Yeah. Follow her instructions there. I think they're important. Okay, so now we come to the next kind of mystery learning experience of this. And this is to heat up a large nonstick frying pan with a lid. But she also says you can do a griddle with a lid. So Andrea, I swore up and down that my large nonstick had a lid. I couldn't find it anywhere. My griddle, as (laughs) we established last episode, does not have a lid. (laughs) No. Mm -mm. No. So what I ended up doing was tenting mine with foil. Because you want a lid that you can put over but it's not going to crush these souffles as they're rising in their mold in the pan so I made a tent with aluminum foil okay and maybe that worked maybe that didn't but I didn't end up having a lid did you have an actual lid that fit your pan I did this is where I'm going to give a little mini gadget garage shout out listener Craig maybe a year or two ago, Mm -hmm. gave me a lid that goes on top of my cast iron pans beautifully. Okay. You know, most of my cast iron pans are really old. I got them from, you know, who knows where. And so they don't have a lid that came with them. Right. The great thing about this lid that he gave me is that it has a little twist on the knob at top. And so you can vent it. So if you want to let steam out, you can. If you don't want to let, if you want to keep the steam in, you don't need to. Okay. It has a nice rubber edge, so it can just sit either in your pan or on top of your pan. Mm -hmm. I will put a link in the show notes to this lid that, unfortunately, I'm drawing a blank on what the name of it is, but it's absolutely fabulous. I use it all of the time. I think, in fact, I'm on my second one because I, I went through the first one so quickly. Nice. I did use that lid. I used my 10 inch cast iron skillet thinking that that would be big enough and still because you know how the lid is domed a bit you know the center is higher than the edges Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I found that when I put my lid on my parchment paper that was two inches high was higher than the edge of my skillet and so my parchment paper got smushed down a little bit when I got my lid on so that was a bit disappointing exactly especially since yeah I didn't feel that in the end, by round three, that it, I needed a two-inch high parchment. Agree. So I definitely did need it in round one when I didn't make my circles big enough. Then I did fill the batter into the parchment paper. She says fill it about 80% of the way. And in round one, where I had these sort of little silver dollar pancakes, the batter did then rise and puff up to the edge of the parchment. So when I flipped it, the batter was now on the bottom of the pan perfectly. Yeah. But when I did my wider circles and I filled it about 80% and I did, you know, same process, same heat on the pan, same lid on top, all of that. Right, right, right. They did not puff up to the edge of the parchment. Right. Two things happened when I flipped it. When I flipped the first one, the pancake just naturally fell back into the pan. And so I was like, oh, that's cool. That must be how it's supposed to work. But when I did the second one, it didn't slip down. And so now I basically just had the parchment on the 
edge of the pan and the pancake itself wasn't really cooking. Yeah, right. And then the parchment, you know, I think got tired and so it started to fold inward and oh no. Yeah. So, well, what you're saying sounds very familiar to me. Mhm. You know, she says fill 80% of the way. My batter barely filled those things half full. So I had the similar problem, Andrea, that it cooked on the bottom and was definitely getting puffy. But then when I went to flip it, it collapsed. Yes. Like the parchment paper just folded in on itself. And I just decided to leave it to see what would happen. I thought, you know, I can peel this off. Mm. And then I just, I could not get them to cook. She says, cook for six to eight minutes and then flip. They were brown, you know, nicely browned on the bottom. Like Uh as in my normal pancake recipe, a color that I would flip them at. That felt good to me. Then I flipped again and it says, you know, another five to six. It was still completely raw. I did another two. It was still completely raw. I just could not get that second side to cook. But now it's been an extra four minutes. The bottom's getting too brown. So they were firm enough. Here's where I went rogue. What? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I went rogue. They were firm enough now that I could cut away the mold. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I cut away that mold and I continued cooking it for an additional two minutes. So I've cooked them six more minutes. I finally got them cooked through. And that was... The end of my saga. Yeah. yeah. It was like 45 minutes at this point. Now, I think I have an answer, potentially. Um, Okay. The one thing that I did different, so you said you were using a nonstick pan. Yeah, it was a nonstick. Mm -hmm. And then I did the the light film of oil with the paper towel. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. Right. Uh, The difference here is that I was using my cast iron pan because my griddle is typically cast iron. But since I don't have a lid for my griddle, I thought, well, I'm going to use my cast iron pan. Mm -hmm. Lately, what I've been doing with my cast iron pan, it's a similar philosophy to preheating my oven for a very long time. Right. I started preheating my cast iron pan, even though it's step five in the instruction. Yeah. I started it, you know, right before step two, before I even started mixing the ingredients together. So I put my cast iron pan on my range, and Mm -hmm. I have two low settings on my gas range. I have a low and a simmer. And I put it on low. Okay. And so it had a good solid, I would say, 10 minutes just at low, already getting warm, yeah. before I even got to step five and put my oil in it. So when I put my oil in it, it just, you know, spread beautifully. It was nice and warm in there. Yeah. And again, since I did I did have to do three rounds of this with multiple rounds of measuring and mathing and cutting that, you know, I do think by the end, especially when I made my big ones, my pan was just so smoking hot, nice and warm. Yep. 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 So I had no trouble with them being cooked through. I gave my first round to my husband. He's sort of the, you know, give it to him. He'll eat anything. (laughs) I made a note that he said, I like these. They're okay. (laughs) Now, Mm -hmm. As you know, my husband typically says this is the best thing I've ever had. (laughs) So that's a long way from that. (laughs) That's a little bit of the damning with faint praise there. Also, with his round, I think I just put a little maple syrup on it and called it a day. Okay. For the second round, I gave them to my daughter, and I did the pretty little ball of butter, and I did some strawberries, and I did the syrup. She ate all of those, and she made the comment that, the butter was really good. Well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I think her pancakes, she just felt were a delivery for butter. My husband overheard that and he said, oh, mine really needed butter too. Okay. For round three, which I gave to myself, I did it all. I did the butter, the syrup, the sugar, the powdered sugar, and the strawberries. And at the end of the day, my assessment was that 
I don't really like eggy souffles. Mm-hmm. And that's what really yes. came through yes. to me on this. I don't necessarily want my pancakes to taste like eggs. I want my eggs to taste like eggs and I want my pancakes to taste like pancakes. I think that's why this particular recipe, just in terms of the effort for the result, just didn't grab me. And you know, you just alluded to a major flaw, at least in my house, for this recipe. It only makes two. You had to go three rounds and not even by choice to feed your family. That's right. I went one round. I thought they were puffy, kind of fun. But Mm -hmm. I, like you, I felt like I was eating a meringue. Mm -hmm. Mine also had this kind of acidy taste that I'm going to put down to the cream of tartar. It was not unpleasant, but it was very noticeable. I did not care for it. Way too much work and just frustration for two pancakes at the end of the day. So this is going to be one, if I ever get to a Graham Cafe, absolutely I'm ordering this. I had that same thought. I, you know, when we looked last week at the Graham Cafe website and they had that gorgeous restaurant griddle with all those cute little domed lids, I thought this is a perfect thing to have in a restaurant. This uh, fluffy, puffy pancake that you did absolutely zero work for. So, yep, I definitely will try it. And I still want to thank listener Candy for bringing these to our attention because Honestly, this was a trend that had just passed me by. So I'm really glad I know a little bit more about it. Totally. I think I'm just going to stick this one in my recipe file of things to order at a restaurant. I'm right there with you. Let's see if this week's bake-along is going to turn out a little more successfully for us. This week, we're making some black sesame cookies. And these come from the Just One Cookbook food blog. Stefan, I was really excited to find a Japanese recipe that included cookies. You know, I found a lot of breads and pastries and that sort of thing. But um, this one is the one that really grabbed me. Yes. I liked it because she had both the weights and the measurements. So on her very first ingredient, she has 120 grams of unsalted butter. But then she also writes one stick, half a cup, or four ounces. So I knew right away, I was like, yeah, this is our girl. She knows how to write a recipe for us. (laughs) (laughs) I noticed that right away, too. And of course, I just love it. It makes it so easy. I just love baking this way. Also, if you want to cut this down, it's much easier to do that with a weight. I thought in general, Andrea, just reading over this recipe, this was a very well-written recipe, and that's worth saying. We see so many recipes, yeah, and Mm -hmm. they're, they're not always up to this standard, and I really, really like it straight out of the gate. The other reason I thought it was perfect for preheated is in her recipe header note, she says these delicious black sesame cookies are buttery, nutty, and crisp. With a savory sweet combination, they are delightful with a cup of coffee or tea. I know. (laughs) And you know, part of the reason, of course, they're buttery. This is like a shortbread. You have your unsalted butter there. Mm Mm-hmm. Regular flour, but you also have 40 grams of almond meal. So that's going to have a nice texture and a nice nuttiness. A little bit of sea salt. And then the star ingredient is the toasted black sesame seeds. Andrea, I had to order these special, but it wasn't a big deal at all. They were readily available on Amazon. And of course, if you eat Japanese food regularly, you'll often see these on the outside of a sushi roll. That's probably where I've seen them the most. And I always have these in our house. We eat a lot of what I call brown rice bowls or Buddha bowls where I just mix together brown rice and a lot of different ingredients, and I love putting black sesame seeds on top. Mm, But please pay attention to the quantity. It's 40 grams or 1.4 ounces. Mm -hmm. That typical glass jar you buy in the spice aisle at the grocery store, 
that is, I think, about 2.3 ounces. So you're using almost a whole jar of these. So if you've only got a few teaspoons and you think you're going to be okay, make sure you take a look before you jump into this. Yeah, I mean, it's as much sesame seed as the almond meal. Good point. Good point. Yes. Yes, yes indeed. And Stefan, I think you skipped one ingredient, which is pretty important here. Uh, between the almond meal and the pinch of sea salt, there's 80 grams of sugar. I also missed the large egg yolk, so don't listen to me. No. <laughs> Well, had you baked these next week and given us a review that was like, these were odd, they weren't very sweet, and they didn't hold together, we would have known why. But thank goodness, this is just our week of introducing and talking about the ingredients. So the only ingredient that I'm going to have to go out and get special is the almond meal. Mm -hmm. I used to keep it in my pantry, and after we did our flower power month, I realized that it was one of those that could go rancid. Yeah, since it's nut. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I went and grabbed it out of my pantry, and I took a sniff, <laughs> and it didn't smell Uh-oh. super great. I thought, you know, this isn't a time where I need to now take a, a bite and, yes, and you know, correct. confirm it. Correct. I thought, I'm just going to start over. So I will need to get my hands on that almond meal. If I can't find almond meal... I do have raw, untoasted, unsalted almonds, and so I know I could also just whiz that up in my food processor if I need to. Yeah, perfect. And listeners, if you want to go that route, just be sure to keep an eye on your processor because if you go a little bit too far, you've made almond butter, and that's not what you want here. (laughs) Delicious, but not what you want. Otherwise, Andrea, it really reads like a shortbread recipe you are doing this in a food processor so you have all of your dry ingredients. And, you know, she says if you don't have that, just go ahead and use a bowl. I also like there's some variations on when you can add your sesame seeds. If you want them to be finer, you add them with your processor. Otherwise, you can add them later on to be a little more whole and chunky. Then you've got your egg yolk. You're using cold butter, of course. This is a shortbread. And mixing it all together, forming it into a ball – Rolling it out. Andrea, this is a slice and bake cookie, which you're kind of obsessed with these days. (laughs) I know. I'm very excited. And I love step nine because she has a problem that I often have. Mm -hmm. Roll the log in approximately two inches across. And then she says, for me, it's easier to work when the dough is racked in plastic wrap yeah while rolling unwrap some parts of plastic wrap and then roll again form a nice shape I wasn't paying attention so my log is flat on one side (laughs) and I just thought that was so cute and that is something I often run into when I'm rolling my slice and bake cookies so I like that she gives some ideas on how to get your log perfectly round and I'm going to try that when I make these as a shortbread cookie, you are refrigerating these, so do take that into consideration about an hour. Andrea, another thing I like is in step 11. She says, if you prefer thicker cookies, cut the discs about half an inch and you get 20 cookies. I happen to love a thicker shortbread, so that's what I'm going to do. And it's just nice to have it called out with the instructions there, too. I like that, too. I often find that when I'm at home, I make my shortbread thinner, but when I'm at a grocery store or a bakery... There's nothing I love more than buying like one of those shortbread hearts that's a solid, you know, half an inch to three quarters of an inch. Mm -hmm. It's such a perfect, just a full-on dessert. I mean, you only need one. So I really like that, that she has both options there. Yeah, I am really looking forward to these. That is the Black Sesame Cookie from Just One Cookbook. And then you heard us also talk about the Extra Tall 
extra fluffy souffle pancakes, and that was from the blog called I Am A Food Blog. And we will have links to both of those recipes in the show sheets for this episode, which is episode 182, on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as in our Facebook listeners group. Stefan, I don't know about you, but I have learned so much this month about Japanese desserts. Oh, definitely. And even though we've done a deep dive into exotic desserts like anmitsu and looked more closely at classic ingredients like anko or red bean paste, I still feel like we've barely scratched the surface. So true. That's why we're closing out this month by pointing listeners towards some of the resources that we found helpful during this month focused on Japanese sweets. Let's start with the blog we've used more than once. It's justonecookbook.com, created by Namiko Hirasawa Chen, or Nami, in 2011. She started Just One Cookbook as a blog to keep track of her recipes and to share them with her friends who wanted to learn Japanese cooking. She's got both online recipes and video, which is really helpful when making some unfamiliar items. Nami's website has been super helpful for us this month. Today, of course, we're using her recipe for those black sesame cookies. I read her advice on making red bean paste at home, and she educated me on mitsu, that black sugar syrup that goes on top of anmitsu. Nami's website has a recipe page, and you can filter by course and choose dessert. From there, you'll see everything from matcha panna cotta to cherry blossom milk pudding. I was happy to discover she often uses both weights and measures as we just discussed in this week's Bake Along, which is so handy for me since I prefer to weigh my ingredients these days. Another helpful online resource we found was Shihoko over at the Chopstick Chronicles, and she was the source of that amazing shokupan bread. Shihoko, you've changed our lives forever. <laughs> Seriously, I love that this food blog is created by a mother-daughter duo. That's Shihoko and Elizabeth. They're both originally from Japan, but now living in Australia. And in addition to that amazing shokupan, you can find desserts such as raindrop cake and Japanese melon bread. For listeners who want to dive even deeper, here's a few good cookbook resources. First up is Tanoshi, The Joy of Japanese-Style Cakes and Desserts. And this is written by Yamashita Mastaka. His book focuses on Japanese-inspired French pastries and covers the basics such as a short crust, a cream puff dough, and cream custard, as well as more elaborate celebration cakes. I love that Tonoshi translates to pleasant or delightful, and that's exactly what I imagine these recipes to be. Chef Yamashita started his own patisserie in Nara, Japan, and now he runs his own shop, Floor Patisserie, in Singapore. Check out his website. You will be amazed by the photos. Another cookbook that caught our eye and spotlights the fusion of French-style baking with Japanese flavors was Okashi, Sweet Treats Made with Love. Author Kiko Ishida was born and raised in Tokyo, and her cookbook includes many chiffon cakes with Japanese flavors like black sesame, green tea, sweet potato, and red bean paste. Andrea, you'll also be thrilled to note she includes an entire chapter on pet treats. Just what I need. Or maybe just what my dog needs. <laughs> Stefan, listeners who want a cookbook good for beginning bakers should check out Kyotofu, Uniquely Delicious Japanese Desserts. And this is written by Nicole Bermansolo. Nicole was the owner of a now-closed dessert shop called Kyotofu in New York City. And there she developed a reputation for stellar Japanese parfaits, jellies, and sweets made with soy including a silky pumpkin cheesecake made from tofu. 
Her cookbook is an excellent introduction into the Japanese palate as she combines Japanese flavors into formats like creme brulee and biscotti. We've got food blogs. We've got cookbooks. What more do we need? How about some video? You already know of my love for the Netflix series, Kantaro, the Sweet Tooth Salary Man. <laughs> but if you don't want to commit to a 12-episode sweets drama, check out YouTuber Ochikiran on her channel, Create Eat Happy. She has easy, cute recipes, and her videos usually last about five to six minutes. They often include the history of the dish in Japan as well. I particularly enjoyed her Japanese strawberry shortcake in a frying pan. And I love that that was a recipe with no oven required. Listeners, what are some of your favorite places to learn or eat Japanese sweets? Drop us a line at hosts at preheatedpodcast.com or post in our Facebook listeners group. Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get the sprinkles on top of this episode. We release new episodes every Monday morning. And since this month has five Mondays, next week we'll award a coveted blue ribbon to the Japanese dessert that captured our hearts. We'll also find out if those black sesame cookies captured Stefan's sweet tooth, along with my savory inclinations. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at PreheatedPod. If you like our show, please rate, review, and recommend us on your favorite platforms. Our thoughts are with you and your families and loved ones, and we hope our show has provided a bit of respite when you've needed it most. Until next time, I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Thanks for listening. Be well and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stephen Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions.